welcome to AIJCast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On the season, as we continue our dip into the archives, we are revisiting part of our 2018 conversation with Julian Reed. Julian is a jazz pianist, a member of the band The Juju Exchange, an artist, and a theologian. When we spoke back in 2018, he was finishing up his Masters of Divinity program at Candler here in Atlanta. By the way, this episode is from Season 5. One little tidbit about Season 5, it's the only season in which we do not have the original audio of our episodes for some reason. And so what we'll share with you is from the final mixed episode. And at the time, we were experimenting with creating some audio palettes for our episodes. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But here it is. We spoke with Julian back in 2018 at his home here in Atlanta. Julian Reed, welcome to AIJCast. Thanks so much, man. Good to see you. So you grew up in Chicago. Yeah. And I'm interested how that experience growing up there uh, uh, led to really these two paths that you have taken that are kind of, how would I say it? They're, they're separate, but one, if that makes sense. So there's the, there's the faith path and there's the music path. So take me on a journey on those. Yeah. Chicago is a great place for both. Grew up in the church, United Methodist Church. My mom's a pastor. And I was always in everything at church, but then also was playing piano from basically jump. And when I was two, I was in music appreciation class. And when I was in, when I was three, I was in group piano class. And that stopped for some reason. By the time I was four, I wanted to keep playing though. And went to my ma every day for six months, asking her to take me down to the local park district so they could unlock their piano. And I would tinker around with the book I had from group piano because we didn't have a piano at the time. Yeah. So once that went long enough, they realized, okay, this is serious. But notably, even after I got into lessons, private lessons in Chicago, both with Miss Julia Sittner, God rest her soul, and then also at Merritt School of Music, and that was a large chunk of it. Even though I was happening there in music and also was always in church, I didn't think about the two really being fused together. I think the closest I got was feeling comfortable playing religious music, uh, beautiful classical arrangements of hymns Mm. in church, and then learning how to play gospel. But thinking about music as a form of theological expression was not what I was doing until way later matter of fact recently so you were still playing so all along you've been playing music absolutely piano any other instruments i would say that i only play <laughs> piano <laughs> but i've operated other ones you've so. oper- oh i like oh that's so good i'm gonna steal that yeah. great so i've operated a trumpet and a baritone i operated bassoon for a couple of years in band and i operated clarinet and all of these instruments band instruments in uh, elementary school under Theodore, Mr. Theodore, and then in high school under Mr. Lanzino. But the only one I ever developed a kind of deep relationship with that would lead to therefore playing it was piano. What was it about piano and your connection with it? That's a great question. I've been actually thinking about this question lately, namely, what do instruments do to the musicians who play them? Yeah. And then also, what kinds of personalities of musicians draw them to certain instruments? Right. And I don't have one answer, but I like those questions. So what is it for you? For me, I like I liked growing up with the 
probably the tactility of piano, also the ease of accessibility. Even as a three-year-old, as a four-year-old, I was able to make comprehensible sound. Right, right. Um, I never thought of that. That's a great point. I operated a viola. My mom played viola. My mom's one of the main reasons I play music at all, because she played harp growing up semi-professionally when I was a young buck, and also because she played piano growing up and would encourage me in that once I started taking lessons. My dad did too, but his joke always was he played stereo. (laughs) He played the stereo. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so for me, piano was immediately accessible. There was a little bit of family lineage behind it. But then as time went along, I became more interested in all the different ways a piano functioned in group settings. So a piano could be the lead. A piano could be backup. A piano could keep time in the left hand playing rhythm. A piano could not do that and just play chords and solo. A piano could imitate horn lines. A piano could actually be a embodiment of an orchestra of of an orchestra distilled down to two hands i love the versatility yeah of piano but there came a time in high school when i thought man i love piano no question about that and you know looking back now i would say that piano was forming me to be a certain kind of musician to be able to accompany to be able to sit in relationships with folk as a as a participant on piano. But in high school, I was thinking, I love piano, but classical music is not really captivating my attention. Mm-hmm. Like it would need to for me to take this further, mm-hmm. for me to take it more seriously. I had a great teacher, Miss Ann Bierman, who still teaches at Merritt School of Music. She taught me for years. I grew so much under her tutelage as well as under Miss Julia Sittner. But... There came a time I said, piano will always be with me, no doubt, but classical is not where it's at right now for me. Um, And I knew there were moves that others were making that I should have been making if I were to do it. So studying contemporaries, studying recordings of old cats playing, you know, the, the originals or close to the originals, studying and really wanting to get deep into it and i just didn't feel compelled to do that Hmm. but at christmas time every year for a couple years there just came this different feeling for me regarding music because that's when the vince garaldi charlie brown record came on uh that's when my parents or i even if this weren't true i always remembered christmas time being the time when they would play joe sample who is this really cool yeah uh fusion cat and I just got really into that. And I didn't know what to make of the fact that when I got the transcription of Vince Guaraldi solos, I just came alive trying to learn how to play O Tannenbaum, right. like the record, and trying to play Linus and Lucy yeah. and everything else, like I heard all the time on the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But I couldn't put words to it saying, this feeling I have about music is fundamentally different from the feeling I have regarding the classical music I'm playing throughout the rest of the year. So I just let that tension remain and then just continued on but as god would have it the next year or not the next year but my sophomore year in high school my band teacher mr lanzino started a jazz quartet Mm -hmm. and he said hey i see that you have played classical music i was in this beginning band class operating clarinet to give you perspective (laughs) 
<laughs> I've seen you play classical piano for 12 years or something at that point. Would you like to be in this jazz band? And I said, yeah, sure. Whatever. I mean, it was pretty apathetic. Yeah. Uh, but I was intrigued. And once I got in there, I was smitten. And that's when I started to do and care and recognize and study in the ways that a serious musician should so, and needed to. So jazz really had this kind of connective tissue for you with the instrument. Absolutely. Uh, in a way that classical didn't. And even I was learning gospel for sure. But yeah. even that didn't really sit huh. with me uh, in the way that full on improvisation did coming from jazz. And I love gospel and have gotten a lot more into the genre as time has gone along. And of course, gospel and jazz share the same parent yeah. oh, sure. you know, of the blues. So it's incumbent to understand, in my opinion, to understand one in order to understand the other. Um, but jazz made my heart sing in a unique way. Mm. That's so interesting. I mean, I think about, you know, that age that you're at where you're in high school and everybody else is listening to pop music. I'm, I'm sure you yeah. were listening to pop music too, right? Yeah. Uh, Lil Wayne. Lil Wayne. Okay. <laughs> Yo, everything for Lil Wayne, especially the underground mixtapes, like the Carter 2.7, Lil Louisiana, them joints. Yeah, yo, I knew all them joints. Mm -hmm. Not very piano-heavy records. <laughs> uh, good point. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, very nah. So there's, there's kind of stepping out of the, the, the pop music thing and into this jazz world, but that, that worked for you some, for some reason. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the way you're framing the question is even making me reflect on how jazz was functioning as a different kind of social world uh -huh. for me than classical i think i always felt a little lonely being a black cat sure. in a classical world yeah. i was cool with the white cats playing cool with the asian cats playing but there weren't these deep relationships we weren't relating in terms of life experiences and mm -hmm. i just often remember mm, quickly taking in the fact that i was one of the only black cats in the room if not the only black cat. I didn't really think anything of it. It was yeah. music. I wanted to play it. So that's why I was there. But I noticed a fundamental difference once I found jazz. Because there I started to find black cats who were as committed to music, as serious about shedding scales as these uh, classical cats were. And I developed relationships not just with black cats, but with white cats yeah. and Latino cats, Latina cats um, playing jazz. And that was dope. Uh, and But the music brought us together in a different kind of way and so that also became attractive because not only did i want to shed because i loved how miles sounded or bill evans or Wynton kelly but i also wanted to hang with them cats afterwards and play ball with them or go to ihop until three in the morning with them after a session just because they were the homies there's so there's a sense in which jazz music became this kind of it, it became a community yeah and it was also soul music in a sense, yeah. like it spoke to your soul in a different way. Absolutely. But I couldn't articulate that it was speaking to my right. soul. And and I think that was a process that would take a lot longer to develop. Um, something that's really exciting about music for me now is that it's this on-ramp to this highway of conversation about the deep things in life. And that's always been true, hmm. that I've cared about that highway. 
I didn't realize, though, that jazz was a means of getting onto that highway. I thought that highway was accessed only by what I was hearing in sermons mm-hmm. or what I was reading in the Bible mm-hmm. week in or week out, or even what I was studying in philosophy right. during undergrad or during debate tournaments during high school. So in addition to jazz, I was debating, um, doing high school debate. And these were also the ways to get into these nitty gritty, uh, philosophical, highly intellectual conversations. Right. For me, music at the time functioned primarily as a way to exercise technical mastery and then enjoy the sounds that came mm. as the fruit of that. Yeah. But of course, it's so much more. Yeah. Art, art becomes this, uh, this uh, vessel, right? This, Absolutely. This channel. Julian Reed on AIJCast. We'll be back with more of our 2018 conversation in just a moment. But first, a quick word. As always, I encourage you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com, which is a fantastic place to connect with our artists, including their news, information, and products. We've got links there to Julian's latest work, including the latest releases from his band, The Juju Exchange, and his fantastic Notes of Rest Spiritual Formation Ministry. We've also got links to supporting AIJCast. As a reminder, we are spending some time contemplating what comes next for this podcast, and that's where you can come in and help make it possible. You can support us with a one-time donation, AIJCast.com, where that little link says support. And you can find us over on Patreon and become a monthly sustainer over at patreon.com slash AIJCast. And we've got links to this and so much more on our website. Just go to AIJCast.com. And now, back to more of our 2018 conversation with Julian Reed. Here you are, working on a Master of Divinity Yeah, degree. right. So you are still pursuing that ministry in the quote-unquote normal sense or in the traditional sense. Right. So you haven't let go of that piece either. Right. Right? So... I want to circle back around to music, but let's talk a little bit about the ministry piece and as, as it's kind of more traditionally understood. So my journey, I'm only 27, but my journey has been so <laughs> varied and has involved so much. It's just really a joy to look back on and, and constantly recast mm. as I need. So now at 27, I'm able to look back over the last 15 years and see how all kinds of streams are flowing together into one big river. Right. And these small little tributaries are not just learning how to play jazz in high school or starting to get into that. It's not just studying philosophy during undergrad at Yale. It's also having done finance and thought about going into the corporate world in this. And I remember for the long time, for the longest time, I always wanted to go into corporate America. I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that that was a really helpful phrase to <laughs> have in conversation. <laughs> and I and I, my dad's a corporate lawyer. Yeah. Always have had tremendous respect for him for what he's been able to do, how he's been able to exercise his intellect, the people he's he's been able to engage. So like father, like son, I thought. And my mom also has a corporate background, having done finance before now doing pastoring. So I was figuring that I was just going to pattern myself after them, and the music would always serve as a vessel Mm -hmm. on the side to then be the outlet or however else I was thinking about it. So it's still kind of a compartmentalized vision, yeah. Yes. That's a big word, a big theme that I'm now looking back on my life and realizing never was really possible. Um but has somehow taken place where I've sought to compartmentalize finance, music, 
thinking deeply about philosophy and the like. So I remember during undergrad, I was working on Wall Street. My girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, she had come down to hang with me and we were walking in Times Square and I was working 90 hours a week. Right. This is one of the few afternoons I had off. We pass a subway stop and there are these cats playing New Orleans-like jazz. And I remember looking at her and thinking and saying, I remember when I used to play music. And that moment has stuck with me for so long because that was such an honest admission, not only to her, which of course raised all kinds of red flags, but also to me that I had felt so long gone. Right. That got me into ministry because I realized with decisive moments like that coming up throughout that summer, that finance wasn't going to give me the opportunity to have the kind of deep conversations about what really matters in life um, with folk because you have to work 90 hours a week mm-hmm. and you're tired. And even if you do want to have those conversations, those are going to happen on the margins. Those aren't the main questions on the table. And it's not a knock against the field. It's just, you know, the nature of what it is. Well, I hear in, the, and I hear in that almost, I mean, it sounds like something that an old man would say. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're not even out of college. Mm. And like, oh, you know, it's like you're nostalgic Dang, yeah. for when you were a little kid and doing fun things, you know? That's a great point. It's your rosebud moment, right? Rosebud. Yeah, man. That's a really helpful way to think about it, to reframe it. Yeah. Um, I hope to never forget that moment. Yeah. So out of that then, out of that summer, then came this exploration period where I was working in campus ministry for three years. And I figured that that first year was the funniest because I only worked 29 hours a week thinking, well, I want to maybe try my hand full time at music. So I'm going to find some day work and as in ministry to float myself, also figure out if I want to do ministry and then practice a lot. Right. Well, as anyone who does ministry can tell you, ministry is not easily (laughs) confined to 29 hours. There's part-time pay, not part-time work. Correct. So I understood that and learned that lesson. (laughs) But in addition, I did practice a lot. And I thought, okay, God, this is a year of exploration. Basically, this is a dual internship. I'm both an intern for this campus ministry I'm also an intern for myself, so to speak, as a musician. So I'm going to try to practice a lot, try to play as much as I can and see where that leads. Do I, at the end of this year, want to go full time and move down to New York from Connecticut to try my hand full time? Do I want to move back to Chicago? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, at the end of that year, I had gotten better. I practiced a lot, but felt a lot more interested in ministry and thought you know music will always be around but there haven't been any big breaks that have come as a result of this year Mm. so i'll just again have that be the side vessel compartmentalize it that'll always be there but instead go full-time and so then for the next two years while doing campus ministry i just went all in and was working you know 60 hours or whatever was the case um and then playing piano in the nooks and crannies 
jumping backwards a little bit, there's this moment where in your, your undergrad, you're studying philosophy and yeah. then you find this beautiful way in your thesis of knitting together philosophical principles of society and jazz, jazz quartet. Yeah. I was so happy that I could do that. Uh, that was probably the biggest statement up until that point to myself and to the world that I could integrate my love of music and my love of deep, abstract, intellectual thinking. Yeah. Lay that out for us. Yeah. I, there's, it's an incredible premise. Thanks, man. So I had been studying a lot during undergrad, the traditional Western models of political society. And the two that I decided to take up in my thesis were Locke's vision of classical liberalism, which is based on private property mm-hmm. and rights and people being in relationship around these ideas. And then having people, based on those ideas, having them have freedom beyond that to do as they wished. Obviously, these are (laughs) rough reconstructions. (laughs) And then on the other side was Hegel's vision of communitarianism. And in that view, he was talking about how communities, how societies have what he called a sitlakite, which was describing the spirit that would be in that community. And the purpose was for the community to figure out what that Sitlakite was, honor that, and live out the ethical life in relationship with each other. Mm. So you have a more community or communitarian view on one hand and a more classical liberalist picture on the other. And I was interested in looking at the jazz quartet, abstractly understood, Mm -hmm. as speaking against and also to both of those so in conversation in conversation so the point was for it to inform these different views of philosophy and then also put forth its own conception of a society and i ultimately argued that i preferred the jazz polity in part because i liked how it was moving past notions of private property that were native to Lockean mm-hmm. liberalism. And also it was taking some of the best from Hegel's communitarianism about the ethical life and expanding that, talking about not only the relationships between people who are on stage, so to speak, the big performers in a society, but also talking about the relationship between performers on stage and then the audience that's watching them. Mm. And so it was a way of putting some more flesh on the communitarian picture. And I loved how it was in conversation with both, but then also moving past both. Hmm. Um, So at the time, it was a very helpful way of thinking about what musicians model and what musicians participate in. Mm -hmm. Now, years later, this was five years ago, six years ago. Now I'm thinking more about how what musicians model is always already participating in the systems around it. Sure. And that is an exciting feature uniquely explored by live shows. Mm. And I'm super interested in this as a performer now. Because see, at the time when I was writing this, it wasn't so much as a performer. It was more so as a 
theorist. Right. And I was, you know, gigging. Well, player and gigging, but not, yeah, not live gigs all the time. Not live gigs all the time like this and not with the kind of uh, trajectory that I'm so excited for my band. We can talk about that in a second. Yeah, we'll get Um, to that definitely. Yeah, that it has. So I just have different stakes. Right. And they're different. uh, They're different concerns on the table. So now I'm talking about what a live show can uniquely give folk. And I think part of what a live show uniquely gives folk is a digestible model of society, a digestible model of how people interact. They can either interact well together, they can interact on a need to know basis. So this is one of the critiques of liberalism, which is if you just set up stoplights to ensure that cars don't crash, you don't actually encourage people with the laws and whatnot to get out of the cars and get to know one another. Mm. The cars just need to make sure that they don't hit each other. It's a prohibitive, not a permission giving. Exactly. That's very helpful. Jazz, again, when it's working healthily, it's promoting a very permissive identity forming, identity building, community building enterprise where I am genuinely interested in the sounds that you're creating and what you're producing because it's informing me but also in addition to it informing me it's also just beautiful on its own right and we're able to create something together based on its own beauty and so i love how that comes about now i think an interesting critique and i don't know how to get out of this but an interesting (laughs) critique of all this is to what extent do people need to be producers in order to have Mm -hmm. any value in society and I was thinking like this at the time, but it's a big question now, of course, when you think about, you know, what to do with black boys who are underperforming in school. Do you warehouse them in prison and right, the like right, right. because they're not producing in the right ways in society or what's well, very utilitarian view, right? Absolutely. And this no doubt can also befall people in a super elite world absolutely, like, yeah. like jazz, where you have to study a whole lot. You have to have the money to afford instruments the money to afford lessons, usually for set instruments. Right, there's got to be some leisure built into your schedule somehow to p- practice, play, perform, etc. Exactly. And now that doesn't have to be the only way sure. improvisation happens. Of course, we know people the world over improvise right. all the time. Right. And they, ain't, they don't need to be caught up deep in the logics of <laughs> capitalism that mm-hmm. grips the American jazz scene. But that is the context in which I play. That's your context. Yeah. So I'm aware of that. Um well, it, it's, mm. it reminds me of uh, an interview I heard with uh, Herbie Hancock. He talked about when he was playing with Miles Davis. Mm. And this, to me, speaks to some of what you're talking about. This I love that phrase you came up with, jazz polity. I love that. Um, as a Presbyterian, we love the word polity, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just use <laughs> jazz polity for now, and I love it. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> but they were, they were playing, and it was Miles' band, and Herbie was playing in it. Yeah. And Herbie hit a wrong note. Yes. You know this interview? Yes, I do. And Miles looked at him funny, mm. and then Miles looped back around mm. and mimicked that note mm. in a way and adjusted his note, no, right. adjusted his play to make what Herbie did right. That's right. Miles didn't hear it as a mistake. He heard it as something that happened, just an event. And so that was part of the reality of what was happening at that moment, and he dealt with it. Since he didn't hear it as a mistake, he felt it was his responsibility to find something that fit. That that taught me a very big lesson about not only music, but about life. 
And that idea of incorporating mistakes and trust, there's a kind of grace in that description that is really, I, I think, not only a, has powerful potential for society, but also for the church and how the church could strive to be. That's a great, that's a great point. And driving that point for Herbie and as you just articulated it is the value of beauty. Yeah. Cause Herbie was concerned in that interview about something all musicians struggle with is, Am I playing correctly? Did it sound good? Yeah. So that it can sound good. Yeah. That ends up being this common goal, the common, uh, the common end towards which the community is striving. Speaking back right. to the political philosophy right. terms, so the common good is to achieve the beautiful. When you play a wrong note, are you in fact jeopardizing that mm. or moving against that? I don't get the sense that that's always the concern in church about achieving the beautiful it might be concerns about achieving the expedient mm. or <laughs> achieving the historically possible the politically possible yeah. the politically correct achieving the historically responsible there are these other ends that sure. church comes up with and i'm not talking one side or the other sure. you know this is conservative liberal catholic no system yeah. that is it doesn't fall to this of yeah. course so I think that ends up being a beautiful gift, no pun intended, that comes from music, which is to understand at least one end of being creating something that's beautiful and then figuring out how mistakes become right. I was just reading this amazing biography of Thelonious Monk. And in it, Robin Kelly is talking about how Monk says, you're making the wrong mistakes. He's, I think he's talking to some student or something. And he says, you're making the wrong mistakes. And that's a beautiful line because it reminds me of what Charlie Parker said, which is, you know, you shed as much as you can. You learn as much as you can, such that in the moment you just play. And he's not concerned about every single note falling exactly in the scale, but rather playing in such a way that that common end is still in sight. And that's what you're ultimately moving towards, not towards a kind of technical mastery that's more about a robotic precision than it is something beautiful. And the church has, no doubt, been about that, about not robotic precision, but rather something that's moldable and beautiful mm -hmm. based on the efforts people are giving. When you make a mistake, that's an effort. Yeah. And Herbie had an effort that Miles made right made right through his own efforts right uh, or or if not right <laughs> made beautiful julian reed on aijcast you can connect with him online at juliandavisreed.com julian is spelled j-u-l-i-a-n and reed is spelled r-e-i-d on our next episode as we continue dipping into the archives we go back to season one way back to season one and part of our conversation with dancer and photographer shakara marcus AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do this work because of your support. The financial sustainability of this work is one of the key questions we have as we look to moving forward, and that's where you come in. You can support us over on our website, AIJCast.com. There's a fantabulous little link that says support, and you can make a one-time donation there. And you can also become a monthly sustainer over on Patreon at patreon.com slash AIJCast. And as we imagine what comes next, we would love to hear from you. 
One of the ways to do that is to connect with us on the medias that are social. We are there on a multitude of platforms. Our handle is AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Marred Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the very jumpy Al Mudif, who is extremely particular about his bagel toppings. Locks. And I'm your host, Marthame Sanders, encouraging you to create some beauty of your own. And remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, I hope you'll paint your own canvas with justice and peace.